Welcome back to another episode of Work Green, Earn Green. I'm Jay Tipton. Last week, we heard about Colorado's green print for success in the green economy. This week, I'm hopping on a tractor and heading to the natural state, Arkansas. Arkansas is home to over 3 million people and 1 trillion chickens. Not a joke. That is the equivalent of 333,333 chickens per person in Arkansas. I call that El Pollo Loco. Now, maybe you've never visited Arkansas, and maybe you don't even know where it is on the map, but you've definitely tasted Arkansas. No, 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 not taste the actual state, but the food, the food that comes from the state. Now, call me Orphan Annie because I would bet my bottom dollar that if you walked into any supermarket in the U.S., you'll find aisles filled with many of your favorite foods that come from companies headquartered in Arkansas. Here's just a quick list of some of those brands. Nestle, Frito-Lay, Kraft Heinz, Tyson Foods, and there's many more. And get this, the state is the number one producer of rice, number two producer of poultry, hence over one trillion chickens, the number five producer of sweet potatoes, and the number 11 producer of soybeans. So let's dive into Arkansas's most critical crop, rice. It's time to talk big picture about that one little grain. For those of you who didn't know, rice is a staple food for 3.5 billion people worldwide. That's half of the global population. And as the population continues to grow, so too does the amount of rice needed to feed our hungry little tummies. Arkansas's rice farms supply nearly half of the nation's supply of rice and contribute billions to the state economy. So you might assume the state's cash crop has grown at massive industrial farms owned by corporations. Well, surprise number one. 96% of Arkansas's 2,300 rice farms are family-owned and operated, many of which are passed down from one generation to the next. Let that sink in for just a moment. Thousands of Arkansas families are working independently to feed millions of Americans. Now, farming is a practice that is super close to nature, but it also uses pesticides, fertilizers, and as we learned in Louisiana, a tremendous amount of water that depletes our drinking sources. So, is it safe to say this field is green? To find out, I decided to speak with Jennifer James, fourth-generation rice farmer and owner of H&J Land Company. Our family land that we are tilling now, I'm the fourth generation. Our son, he's already back on the farm, so we hope there's a fifth. That's the whole goal. So, how is Jennifer planning to make sure it happens? We have been working toward conserving our natural resources since day one. We want to conserve our soil, keep our soil healthy. We want to conserve our water. We want to make sure our air is clean. Everything we do every day is to conserve all of our natural resources and be able to continue to produce food. And what drives your passion for doing it that way, for you know, being a sustainable farming company? Doesn't take me long to look at my son and know that we have to do it that way. For us to stay in business, for him to be able to continue on and farm the same land that his great-great-grandfather once did, there's a lot of just family legacy involved in, in a lot of family farms across our entire country. It's very important for those families to do that. But it's also important for us to be sure that we're providing a safe and affordable food supply for Americans and those around the world who might be eating uh, rice that's grown right here in Arkansas. 
So aside from her family, Jennifer employs 10 others at her farm, plus a handful of seasonal workers. While that may not seem like a huge number, multiplied across 2,300 farms, and we're talking about a pretty substantial workforce throughout the state. So I was curious about what kind of jobs exist on a farm. We have office staff, and then we do have field staff in the form of equipment operators, combines and harvesters in the fall, which are huge pieces of equipment. And we have a grain bin facility, so we have folks who work there and manage that. Our drying system can be managed from a computer or your cell phone. The days of a horse-pulled plow are long gone. Sounds like agriculture has gotten pretty savvy over the years. So what technology is being used on Jennifer's farm? We have very sophisticated monitors on our planting equipment to make sure that the seed placement is very accurate. There are many sensors out there now these days to help us manage our water levels. Jennifer's point about managing water levels is important because surprise number two. Rice is actually a semi-aquatic plant growing best in waterlogged soil. That means in order to keep their businesses afloat, rice farmers routinely flood and drain their fields. And that water-intensive process puts a tremendous strain on the region's groundwater supply. But plants need water to grow, and farmers need high yields to stay in business. So, how are farmers reducing their water use without sacrificing their yields? We have worked over the years on our farm to make it flatter. We take tractors with GPS guidance equipment that can tell us exactly the elevation and we move the soil around so that when we do irrigate rice, it's the most efficient as we can be. For farmers whose businesses require massive amounts of water, but have managed to cut down on consumption, do they consider their jobs to be green? I believe that farming is absolutely a green job. What could be closer to the soil than planting the seed, right? So yeah, we're absolutely green jobs and we're working toward being greener all the time. While I have full faith that Jennifer's conservation efforts are green, with so many independent operations, can the same be said about the rice farming industry as a whole? Over the last 30 years, I think we've decreased our water usage in the rice industry by over 50%, which is crazy to think, right? So all that work is being done across the rice industry and rice farms in our country. It's very capital intensive. And so it takes a lot of commitment on the farmer part to be able to do this land forming and to be more efficient. But it's really important to us. And I'm proud to say that most folks are doing it. Now, normally this is where I'd pivot to talk about water management and the jobs associated with it. But we've got bigger rice to fry because here comes surprise number three, and it's a doozy. Rice production is responsible for up to 12% of global emissions of methane, which is a devastating greenhouse gas 30 times as potent as carbon dioxide. All in, rice production contributes as much to global warming as 1,200 coal plants. And as the national and global population continues to grow, so too will the demand for rice. Now, sure, we can incentivize companies to move off coal, but can we really expect billions of people to change their diet for the sake of the environment? To help me out here, I speed dialed my very good friend and environmental consultant, Paula DePerna. When something's that basic to people's diets, it's hard to make a change. It's also hard to even talk about wanting to make a change because who, who are we to say people should eat this or that? So what can we do? 
what we can say is that there's only so much water in the world. A state like Arkansas is always dealing with water, groundwater, you know, managing water is a really important part of their economy. So if rice farmers can help manage water, that's a learning curve, that's a skill set, you know, that upgrades the value of the rice and eventually becomes part of protecting the ag economy and therefore the jobs that go with it. So in that regard, it's safe to say farming and agriculture are adopting some green skills. But given the severity of global warming, is managing water really enough to help protect the environment? Water, of course, is one of the big things that nobody wants to waste because it's so precious. And flooding rice fields and just letting the water sit there allows bacteria to grow and thrive and give off methane. So less flooding, less bacteria, less methane. So... Is it safe to say this field is green? The farming industry is in a constant state of trying to become greener and is driving a lot of improvements. On the other hand, you have to somehow make some trade-offs from time to time when you're trying to feed millions of people, especially hungry people. That's a great point about trade-offs. In trying to combat climate change, it doesn't really do any good if we contribute to world hunger in the process. I don't think rice is going away anytime soon, so it behooves everybody to think about how to scale up the innovations that work. That's a tricky thing when you're dealing with a global crop like rice because it's it's a revered food. There's a holiness to rice in so many places. With billions of consumers, rice is being grown in countries all across the world. So little innovations that help sustain a family farm in Arkansas could influence a worldwide practice. It's a complicated story. People are very attached to the land and to their farms. They want to change and improve, but they also perhaps aren't themselves connected to all the innovations that they need to bring down emissions to a tolerable level. So should we be focused more on incremental improvements rather than looking for some immediate resolution? It's very difficult to convert something from non-green to green overnight or even within a decade when there is so many variables. But people seem to be on a trajectory to reduce what they can control right now, which is input, water, pesticides, fertilizers. That, to my mind, is a worthwhile investment because gradually people become more comfortable with using these new methods and things expand. You know, it's a question of knitting things together and then it's a question of cost. So who exactly is knitting things together? And how are farmers with slim margins covering the cost of adopting new ag technologies? The answer may just surprise you. (laughs) Sorry, I had to do it. Stick around after the break to find out. The way we work and the skills we need to do our jobs are changing fast. What do you need to know to keep up? And how do we as a society ensure everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed in today's workforce? I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Join me each week on the Work in Progress podcast as I go one-on-one with the innovators and decision makers who are helping us navigate our way through these challenges. Welcome back, awesome listeners. Before the break, we got our hands dirty by laying down the groundwork for how rice is grown, and we dug up some dirt on some less than green emissions that get released in the process. But with so many different farms operating under so many different owners, how can sustainability be achieved across the board? That's where Riceland Foods enters the picture. Now, you've probably seen this name on your grocery shelves. Riceland Foods is the world's largest miller of rice, generating nearly $1 billion in sales last year. 
and it employs almost 2,000 workers within their seven mills in 30 grain drying locations throughout Arkansas. But what's most remarkable about Riceland is that it's owned by the farmers. We are a farmer-owned cooperative. We were founded in 1921 by farmers, and we are still under that ownership structure. And what that means is the 5,500 farmer members truly own our company. They bring us their rice, and they pay these certain fees to have equity in the company. So they truly own the assets. And they are the lifeblood of who we are. We are the largest rice cooperative in the country. We're the largest rice miller and marketer in the world. That was Mark Holt, Riceland's vice president of sales and marketing. Every year, five to 6,000 farmers like Jennifer ship their yields to Riceland, who is then responsible for processing, selling, and distributing the rice. So what jobs exist at a company involved in so many areas of the rice industry? We've got it from soup to nuts, as they say. You now we need people with our locations to be able to receive that grain. When it comes in at harvest, we need workers to be able to offload it, put it in storage, and keep it maintained in good quality. You've got various employees that are looking to just the physical packaging, loading into the computer. And we've got a quality assurance team that is constantly pulling samples to ensure that we're meeting our specifications. You've got just the direct labor that's watching the line, and you've got the forklift driver loading the truck, and then onward and upward to the rest of America. Sounds like quite a major operation, but would Mark say that these mill jobs are green? I would not consider them to be completely green. I think it's an evolving space for us. And there's still too much reliance on natural gas. There's still too much reliance on a lot of the fossil fuels. You know, when the rice mill was built in the 40s, the technology wasn't available that it is today. So how do you make that footprint work in a space that's economically and sustainably viable in 2022? Mark, you read my mind. So how do you do it? We do have a sustainability team. Do we talk about less water. Absolutely. Do we talk about methane usage and trying to lower that? Absolutely. I mean, all the initiatives from CPG companies out there, we're trying to answer the call, not only for them to be able to do business with them, but at the same time, if I'm an individual landowner, I, I want to maximize my ROI. While it's no secret that farmers want to preserve their land for future generations, I've been wondering who else might be putting the pressure on farmers to adopt more sustainable practices. Well, Mark just gave me a big clue. CPGs. CPG stands for Consumer Packaged Goods, also known as food manufacturers. And a growing number of these manufacturers are creating their own sustainability initiatives, which means farmers can either adhere to greener practices or risk losing out on some serious business. We're working with what we call the ingredient customers, Post, Kellogg, those companies of the world that are taking our rice, using it as an ingredient in their good, and then turning around and selling it as well. So if rice is included in their good, we have a hand in it either directly or indirectly. And each has really kind of created their own, quote, sustainability initiative. Each has defined it a little bit differently than the other. So Riceland Foods looks at the sustainability initiatives across all their buyers, from Fortune 500 companies to local grocers, and compiles a list of the practices that farmers should consider in order to keep business booming. But rice isn't just found in the food in your cabinet, but some of the drinks in your fridge too. Take, for instance, the largest user of rice in America, Anheuser-Busch. 
So here at Anheuser-Busch, 99% of our rice is from Arkansas, and most of our farmers are within Arkansas. That was Bill Jones, the rice agronomy manager at Anheuser-Busch in Jonesboro, Arkansas. In 2018, Anheuser-Busch launched a set of ambitious sustainability goals, like achieving net zero emissions by 2040. And those plans also included ways to empower its community of farmers. So we're on track to meet and even exceed some of those goals. You know, 100% of our farmers will be skilled, connected, and financially empowered. That means that we're providing uh, the farmers with essentially a crop production protocol to ensure the high yields, high quality year over year. And then there's opportunities for subsidies and cost sharing programs, and then financial skills and training. So you may be wondering, how does a CPG know what practices are best for farmers? Well, unlike family-owned farms with a dozen or so employees, CPGs like Anheuser-Busch have ample resources available to conduct field research. We've implemented what we call model farms, so new agronomic practice, or even a technology. We want to help scope that out to ensure that there's not going to be a detrimental outcome for the farm or for our process. And then we use it as a learning platform so we can share that information and scale this practice across all acres. Aha! Scalable solutions. Now we're talking. So what green skills are being passed down from these model farms to Arkansas family farms? So we're able to help the growers manage their fertility, their fungicide timing, or even do they need to irrigate that last time or is it okay to let it go? Many family farms have been handed down from one generation to the next. So are there any programs in place to help them acquire new technologies? We have what we call a grower strategic sourcing program. We bring in various vendors and offer goods and services and we can, we can get a discount that may help the farmer implement a practice or technology that he was before otherwise unable to due to the financial cost up front, or he was just uncertain. So we're able to have those conversations and understand the impact on the farm. So much like co-ops, CPGs are also taking a holistic approach to ensure their network of farmers grow together. All right, Bill, here comes the 60,000 bushel question. Is your job green? As a rice agronomy manager, my job is definitely green. Here at Anheuser-Busch, an agronomist is essentially a trusted advisor. We want to ensure that the growers uh, have every tool in their toolbox to achieve maximum yield and high efficiency, while at the same time pushing the envelope on efficiencies to minimize environmental impact of these inputs, whether it's barley, rice, or even hops. All those ingredients going into beer reminded me that rice isn't the only crop in town. And that got me thinking about whether there was any crossover from one crop to the next in terms of sustainable practices. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Arkansas is also one of the nation's top suppliers of soybeans. And unlike rice, soybeans are grown in rows. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you row rice. Row rice is a new style of farming for rice. So rather than the traditional setup, you essentially are growing rice just like you do corn or soybeans. It allows for alternate wetting and drying of the soil, and it drastically reduces the water consumption. Water usage is down 30 and 40 percent. It's a win-win. That is absolutely a major win-win, Mark. Remember that first surprise about rice growing in flooded fields? 
Well, it's within that waterlogged soil where methane-emitting bacteria grows. So not only is roe rice conserving groundwater, but it's also disrupting the hyper-wet ecosystem that these microscopic methane producers rely on to survive. So, whether it's co-ops or cold brewskis, the food industry is looking out for the farmer's best interest on both an economic and environmental level. And now it's break time. When we come back, I've got a few more surprises in store. Get it? In store? Like a grocery store? (laughs) Aha! Finally, someone is laughing at my jokes. Okay, ready, break. If you're curious about green jobs, good news. Working Nation has even more content for you to dive into. Alicia Clark here, producer of Work Green, Earn Green, and I'm excited to share that a new edition of our video series, I Want That Job, is available now. Each episode features careers that are in high demand and help save the environment, like construction managers, geologists, and some others that may surprise you. So be sure to check them out. Subscribe now to the Working Nation YouTube channel and follow the hashtag GreenJobsNow. Welcome back. So just to recap, we've seen how co-ops and food manufacturers are helping local farmers reduce their inputs while increasing their outputs. But I'm wondering, is all rice created equal? That is to say, has anybody looked into finding a variety of rice that isn't so harmful to the environment? As it turns out, yes. Researchers and scientists are actively developing new strains of climate and drought-resilient rice as well as testing various irrigation methods. To find out more, I spoke with Alton Johnson, director of the Rice Research and Extension Center at the University of Arkansas. The center was established almost 100 years ago to promote sustainability and strengthen the state's economy. We have 1,022 acres where we care on different activities in terms of rice production. Alton explained to me that the research center develops thousands of new varieties of rice every year. I mean, dude, come on. I can name two, maybe three. Wild, jasmine, does brown rice count? So how do they do it? Well, it all starts with the seeds. So we have all these different crosses, our scientists, our breeders. They come up with the variety that passes all the quality assurance and that is released to the farmers. Aside from researchers and breeders, what other green jobs are helping mitigate rice's environmental impact? Entomologists are the ones that make sure that the bugs do not destroy the rice plant. The ag engineers are the ones that are working the raw rice. It reduces the emission of nitrous oxide. Now we've got a full team leading the charge to reduce input and output. But once again, I am torn. On the one hand, people gotta eat. But on the other hand, farming and agriculture doesn't seem quite as green as you'd think. Since rice farming can't be brought down to zero emissions the same way a power plant or electric vehicle could, how else can the industry help offset its environmental impact? Well, remember that little layover rice takes between the farm and the grocery aisle? You know, at the mill? Well, the process of milling involves removing an outer hole and a layer of bran so that rice can be consumed. And with thousands of bushels of rice being processed 24-7, tons and tons of rice-related waste is produced every year. Not only every year, every day. Every day? 
So where do all these inedible rice holes go? Mark from Riceland had the answer. Frankly, a lot of it would just go into compost piles. There was real no viable use for holes. There was no value to them. Now that's changing. We are now exploring a lot of evolving technologies. The silica that's in the rice hole itself has a lot of uses. Whether it be construction, I've seen a pallet made from nothing but rice holes, compressed rice holes. You've got horrible holes, which is used in the planning process throughout the country. I've seen technology where they're trying to make aviation fuel out of these things. Rice, holy smokes, Batman. Can you imagine flying cross-country on a plane running off rice waste? Now that would be some game-changing innovation. Paula, what do you think about using rice holes as a biodegradable material? If it can be used in pallets, it can be used in a lot of things. Platforms, it's essentially potentially a building material. It sounds great in practice, but somebody has to connect the husker to the marketer for the pallets and bring the husks to the, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see, is there any pallet manufacturing in Arkansas? In my limited time in Arkansas, I have yet to come across a rice pallet manufacturer, which is surprising. You'd think more people would have jumped on this. It seems like it would be a major opportunity. Actually, come to think of it, I may double back to Colorado and see if any of the entrepreneurs I talked to last episode would be willing to go in on this with me. Wait, forget everything you just heard. But in all seriousness, the point is, developing new uses for waste products would certainly call for new jobs, don't you think? So, on the whole, it seems like Arkansas's rice farmers are on the right path to reduce their environmental impact. And for a major world crop like rice, the practices used at a family farm or the waste innovations discovered at a rice mill could have major global impact. Is it just me or does the butterfly effect come to mind for anyone else? You know, how like a butterfly flapping its wings in Arkansas can lead to a tsunami of future green jobs. And speaking of the future, Remember how Jennifer said she was hoping to pass down the farm to her son? That got me wondering about how the next generation of Arkansas farmers felt about ag tech innovation. So I decided to give Jennifer's son, Dylan, a buzz. Anything you can teach me about ag technology, I want to know, and I want to be the best at knowing it. It changes every day, every second, and it's pretty well crucial now with the way the prices are going and the way that we're having to maintain our farm very close-knit. It helps us to be sustainable. Technology is one of the main things that I try and focus with and keep up on. Dylan is currently pursuing a degree in ag business at Arkansas State University. I wanted to know what he hoped to gain in the classroom that he isn't learning in the field. These professors are keeping up with advanced accounting techniques, commodity market selling, stuff of that nature. So it really, you're there to get the latest and the greatest, trying to bring something back home, you know. I sure do. And I bet what Dylan takes away from the school will not only help him work more green, but earn more green too. Wink, wink. We really, really try hard on our farm to make sure we're preserving water, preserving land, putting the right amounts of fertilizer out and making sure that we're putting more into the ground than we're getting out to make sure that it stays good and we can keep using this ground and making this ground better for generations to come. Well, it sounds like they're on track for that. So let's kick back and crack open an ice cold beer and cheers to generation six, seven, and eight of Jennifer's Farm and to the continued success of all the family farms throughout Arkansas. 
So thanks for joining me on a little exploration of green jobs in Arkansas. Next time you walk down the grocery store aisle or take a peek at the ingredients on your favorite foods, keep an eye out for rice. Chances are mighty fine that it came from Arkansas. And be sure to join me on the next episode when I visit the electrifying state of Illinois. And as always, make sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can leave comments, questions, and reviews on Apple Podcasts. And share, share, share. Finally, be sure to visit WorkingNation.com to find additional content on green jobs. Later days. This podcast is produced by Alicia Clark and executive produced by Melissa Panzer, Joan Lynch, and Art Bilger. It's written by Jay Tipton and Mike Zunick. Edited and sound mixed by Linz Florin. Assistant editor is Meng Fang Yang. Talent producer is Emily Lelouse and the associate producer is Eve Bilger. Music is by Avocado Junkie. And this podcast is made possible by the Walton Family Foundation.